Hello, welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. I'm James Kirkup, director of the SMF and previously a political journalist at Westminster for 15 years, where I spent my time talking to politicians, officials and other insiders about politics and policy. And now I'm going to talk to you in these podcasts. This podcast is part of the SMF's Ask the Expert series in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council, where we bring publicly funded academics to Westminster and enrich the policymaking conversation with their expertise and knowledge. Today's guest is Lucy Mablin, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Sheffield. Lucy's going to be talking to us about asylum claims, push factors, pull factors. Why do people come here and claim asylum? Lucy, welcome. Simple question to start with. Why do people come to the UK and claim asylum? What's what, what, what's bringing them here? What's something pulling them here? Something pushing them from their home, from their countries? What's what's going on? Yeah. So um, people often think about asylum migration um, in terms of push factors and pull factors. But when we actually look at the research evidence on push factors and pull factors, we find strong evidence on the push pull, push factors, but a mixed and unclear picture um, on the pull factors. So in terms of um, reasons that people come to the UK, what do we know about push, push factors? We know that people are much more likely to make an application for asylum if they are from a country that's experienced genocide, political violence, uh, civil war and interstate war. So wouldn't be surprised to know yeah. that people, uh, that refugees pe- pe- end people, up making people an People leave countries where bad things are happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then... When we look at pull fact, what have come to be known as pull mm. factors, even though I can perhaps talk a yeah. bit about that, how that's not really how asylum, <laughs> migration for asylum works. <laughs> but if we want to then start researching um, pull factors, uh, there's been quite a lot of research on this. So academics don't have a great reputation for doing high impact policy responsive research. But actually, in this field, there have been a lot of studies on uh, the reasons why asylum seekers choose one country over another. Um, And these studies, I've I've been able to identify about 31 um, over the past 20 years. It's around 1997. Um, And in relation to pull factors, we can think about the quantitative research and the qualitative research. So um, the quantitative research is looking at big data sets of where people are coming from uh, or the nationalities of people who've made asylum applications in a particular country and looking for correlations between the no- those numbers of asylum applications and um, uh, and different uh, host country um, contexts, such as um, if it's a peaceful country or if it has, um, uh, I don't know, mandatory detention, the kind of different yeah. reception conditions. So we know from that that there's a consistent correlation with existing refugee populations. So people tend to go to a country where um, people from their friends and family, fam- friends or family or um, their kind of co-national yeah, pe- pe- um, community. People are more likely to go to countries where there are other people from their country who they may yes. have some connection to. Exactly. Um, there's also a consistent correlation um, between, amongst those sta- uh, studies that have looked at it, between colonial ties um, between the sending and host country and that's not something that tends to get a lot of attention but if you've got a kind of long historical relationship between two countries then um, people fleeing one of those countries are more likely to apply for asylum in the kind of former metropole. 
Um, but what we do find in the pull factors is very weak evidence on um, deterrence, reception and processing measures as having yep. much of an effect on um, asylum um, application rates, even though, of course, border controls preventing yep. people from entering your country are very effective. And, um, and, and this is, I mean, this is sort of bringing us into uh, the, the bit where your research comes into into contact with politics and policy in the UK mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. one of the great sort of defining features of the the asylum conversation politically in the UK is you know that you know and we'll talk more about pull factors you know, what's pulling claimants here to the UK but one thing that you will hear from politicians of all sorts and you've heard this for years and years is that you need a tougher regime a tougher mm -hmm, regime mm -hmm. will send that signal that if we can only clamp down and cut out the fake claims mm -hmm. we will deter more people from coming here we heard that most recently I think from the from the home secretary the current home secretary yeah. uh, around about Christmas time uh, over the channel crossings but it's been there for years isn't it this, the idea that you know a tougher regime will 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 deter, but and what, yeah. you're, what you're saying is actually that doesn't really there's, happen. Well, there's very weak evidence on the idea of sending a message, and yep. if a message is sent out there into the world, then um, that will have an effect on decreasing people wanting to come to the country. You can decrease the numbers who actually are able to arrive, yep. um, but there's very weak evidence and. Um, part of the reason for that is just the nature of migration for asylum. So I could explain a bit about that. Mm, if you do, want. do. Um, so when people uh, migrate uh, to another country um, because they are uh, perhaps fleeing persecution or a situation of war, um, they are very unlikely to have perfect access to information about a suite of possible yeah. countries that they could move to and then to be able to compare the policies of those countries which themselves are the policies tend to change quite often and then to make a rational comparative it, it, it's analysis. not it's not like picking your summer holiday and going off to a website and looking yeah. at well i quite like the i quite like the weather there but the yeah but the tax look your tax yeah. the, the, the flight taxes look probably yeah it, it's it, it's a much more constrained set of choices isn't it? yeah so that idea of migrate of uh, asylum shopping for the most perfect country um is really a kind of not very accurate um, representation of how those journeys work. So people don't have access necessarily to um, all of the information that they might um, need mm. to make that kind of rational decision. But then the journeys of people seeking asylum at the same time are also um, unpredictable. Um, it's unlikely they're a, a, they'll be able to execute their migration journey yeah. as planned and migrate you, to a particular you, country. You, you may not end up in the place. You, even if you did sit down and think, I'm, I'm going to go to country X, you might not actually end up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'll meet smugglers, you'll meet yeah. humanitarian actors, you'll meet NGOs, your members of your family might die along the way, you'll encounter border controls, be yeah. detained in a particular country. All kinds of things will happen um, which will alter or change your ability to execute your plan so, to migrate to a... So, so, so if the tough regime that's supposed to send a deterrent message doesn't really send a message, uh, it's going to the other, the other factors at play that you often hear about in in political conversation on the subject. Um, and it, this was this 
the, the main thrust of the thing we're here to talk about is the pull factors. Mm -hmm. The idea that somehow people are coming here because Britain is an attractive place to claim benefits or claim welfare or to work or to be basically, you know, that people are using the asylum system to come to Britain and make themselves richer. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's been a sort of central idea of political conversation on asylum for I mean, probably for as long as, well, I, I've, been, I've been hanging around Westminster for... Oh God, nearly twenty-five years now, uh, and people have always talked about this: the idea, yeah, you know, you know, you know, that, that that asylum seekers are coming here. You know, they're actually they say they're asylum seekers; they're actually economic migrants, aren't mm -hmm. they? But what's what's the what's what's the evidence on 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 the economic factors there as a as a pull factor for for asylum claims? Yeah, so um, there's two elements to that. One is that there is uh, no strong evidence that welfare and work act as pull factors there's no strong long-term correlation between numbers of asylum applications and particular um, measures relating to the economic rights of asylum seekers another thing is that we have probably the one of the most um strict uh, regimes of economic rights for asylum seekers in the world asylum seekers receive 37 pounds uh, 75 a week um that figure is set at what the poorest 10% of the British population spend on essential living items only. So it's a smaller proportion of the income um, than uh, the poorest uh, members of our society receive. Um, and well, very few can probably, access the labour market. Probably worth repeating that figure slowly, isn't it? £37.75 and pence a week. That's mm -hmm. what, uh, £5.20 uh, odd pence a day? Yeah. Um, so it's increased by, I think, 80 P since oh something like 2011 um yeah it's not very much no it's not um and there is quite a, a big body of research evidence by academics and NGOs and think tanks about the effects of these kinds of um, policies of not being able to enter the labour market but also being maintained in a situation po of poverty um which generally finds uh, high levels of maternal and infant mortality, that people struggle to access um, uh, the legal system properly, yep. high domestic violence, all the kinds of things we would associate but, with living in poverty, but then also compounded yep. by perhaps flooding, having uh, flood persecution. And there's, not, there's, there's, not, there's no alternative, is there? Because you can't work. Yeah, yeah. And so while we might imagine that then people would be quite likely to uh, enter the black market, yeah. that they would work illegally, um, some people have said even though we have this restrictive regime, people want to come to the UK because they, they know that there are lots of jobs, yeah. illegal jobs. Um, but in fact, the research that I've seen on that tends to show that while refused asylum seekers might, who have no recourse to public funds, would seek to work in um, the informal economy. Asylum seekers are so scared of ruining their asylum claim and, and being put in prison or being deported that they are very afraid and actually are quite unlikely to engage in illegal working. Okay, can we just go back to that? I mean, the origins of that, that policy that says you, as an asylum seeker, you can't work. Now, that, that, that dates back to 2002. Two, yeah, uh, and essentially, the sort of that's peak, peak new labour, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. You, so. you, you, yeah tell, tell us about tell us about for, for, for younger for younger listeners, mm -hmm. uh, the young folk who love this podcast. Yes. Uh, yeah, tell us about tell us a story of new labour and asylum seekers. Yeah, so new labour had um, 
uh, a policy of being um, rel relatively positive about um, economic migration, um, positive about multiculturalism, etc. Um, but that was offset by an extremely tough stance on asylum. Mm. So they introduced, I think, seven new pieces of primary legislation on asylum and immigration. Um, and they... Um, really clamped down on this um, on asylum seekers in part because there was a huge moral panic at the time mm. um, about asylum seekers seeking to abuse the system. So there was uh, a spike in asylum applications and then there was a concern that these people were not real asylum seekers, that they were economic migrants. Um, and so something needed to be done to prevent them from coming. Now, a raft of changes were introduced and some of those relate to border controls um, in Calais um, and things like carrier sanctions. So airlines get fined if somebody boards the airplane without a proper visa. Um, it's actually not uh, illegal under international law to cross, um, cross a border without legal travel documents because that's an important element to protecting the right to asylum, not preventing people from leaving a country that might be dangerous. But nevertheless, mm. um, ways have been found yeah. around those laws. And so people have been prevented from coming. Um, but the sort of um, softer, or I don't know if that's the right word, but the element that's try sought to act upon people's preferences to stop them being pulled to the UK have specifically focused on their economic yeah. rights. No, I mean that was that was seventeen years ago, mm -hmm. and the I guess the, the 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 salience of asylum has probably dropped uh, since then, quite possibly in line with the absolute numbers because we have seen, yeah. seen seen a reduction in asylum claim numbers, but the issue still it hasn't gone away it can still come back can't it? I mean, you mentioned Calais and I think earlier on you know, I, I talked about the Home Office and, and the home, home Secretaries you know, just Christmas time you know, Christmas New Year we had a, a week long moment of political media madness panic about uh, cross channel incursions that if you read certain certain popular newspapers uh, and listened to certain popular pro uh, politicians you would get the impression that thousands of teeming hordes were getting on boats and crossing the English Channel uh, to coming, you know, coming to invade the UK from Calais. So take us back to you know, to Calais, because one of the things I guess unites the conversation from a decade ago and that most recent panic at New Year is the idea, uh, and we heard this from at New Year from Sajid Javid, current Home Secretary, that if you are in a camp in Calais or in France, or if you're trying to basically make your way from France to the UK to claim asylum, by definition you are a bogus claimant, because mm -hmm. You're, if you're in, UK, in France, you're in a safe country. So nobody's unsafe in France. And therefore, if you're moving from France to the UK to make a claim, then why didn't you make your claim in France? I mean, that's, that has been one of the tropes of this conversation for a long time. Talk us, uh, unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So that's a great question. And the first part of it really is why are people hmm. in Calais? What do we know about why people are in Calais? So there is quite a lot of research on this. Ap academics have been concerned hmm. to look into this. Um, and the research that I've seen has broadly identified three groups of people who are in Calais. So first, many people seeking entry to the UK and they generally cite um, family ties. So particularly um, having uh, about 50% of them will have um, family in the UK mm. and will be seeking to join them. Um, but also having an idea of Britain as being a safe and fair country. 
A sizable minority will be waiting for asylum in France, so they will have made an application for asylum and will be waiting maybe up to five months for accommodation. They are then street homeless, end up living in the camp and they find they're in a situation where the police are regularly raiding, burning down the camp, destroying it, all the kinds yep. of stuff that we see that's dramatic. And understandably, they are tend to have um, ambivalent feelings about mm. the French state's ability to protect them. Mm. The rest are basically stuck and we need to understand the sort of complex um, system, if I've got time to explain that, which has led Go them ahead. to become stuck in Calais. So when they land, and this is from like drawing on research on with interviews with mm. asylum seekers in Calais. So when they tend to ran, land in Italy, they are strongly encouraged or coerced into being fingerprinted, photographed, um, registered by the Italian authorities. But because the Italian um, asylum system is highly overburdened, they tend to then um, be given some emergency shelter, but then be made homeless. Many people who end up in Calais report being coerced then uh, to move to other European countries by I, the police and the border co I mean, controls. Yeah, this, is, this is, I mean, bluntly, this is something that comes up in the European Council elsewhere, the, sort of the, the suggestion, the suspicion that... Italy, for one reason or another, possibly understandable reasons, essentially yeah. is just gently shooing people over the border saying, yeah. well, if you, well please, yeah, please go somewhere else and become someone else's problem. Yeah, so it's not uncommon for people to report being given maps or shown maps um, to get th through into um, northwestern Europe. But once they've been fingerprinted in yep. Italy and identified, their fingerprints are held on the Eurodac ah, European Euro database, Eurodac. Um, which means that the authorities in a country like France can look them up mm. and find out um, that they've already applied for asylum in another EU country. And, and they th don't have the right then to apply and this is br this is And this, this brings us to brings us the Dublin Convention, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so tell, yeah. can you explain... Yeah, it's yeah. possible some people listen to this they don't, don't don't know all about the Dublin Convention. So tell 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 I, yeah. I put souls. Tell <laughs> tell them about Dublin. Yeah. So this was an effort by the European Union and particularly the uh, wealthier states of the European Union to prevent uh, asylum seekers from what they called asylum shopping, mm. from choosing uh, a different different countries, even though they might have entered a country which had been designated as safe. For example, such as Italy. So they pass through Italy. If they just want sanctuary, why aren't they happy just to stay so in Italy? Dub kind Dub of thing? Dublin says you land in Italy, you you, you make yeah. your claim in Italy, you're, pro you're processed you Italy. That's yeah. and and if and if we if we a non Italian EU state find you, we can send you back you're back to Italy. Yeah. So so, yeah. so so asylum seekers having been registered in Italy, being kind of sh shunted out, perhaps into France, find themselves um, find their way to Calais, and they find themselves in a kind of situation of bureaucratic entrapment. So they there's no uh, having been denied provision in Italy, they then don't have any rights yep. in France. Um, there's kind of no way backwards, and no way there's no way forwards. Yep. But out of desperation, they then might pursue life-threatening. So, so, and, and these, this is, these are my, my words, not yours. So, when say a Home Secretary like Sajid Javid says, as he did at, at New Year, uh, I paraphrase, the people who are crossing the channel from France are automatically bogus claimants because they've come from a safe country and they should have made their claim there. He's being a bit disingenuous, isn't he? Because he, I mean, because that, that is not the premise of that statement. Mm. He is essentially an accurate representation of the rules. I'm trying to find really polite, way, polite, way, <laughs> you know, polite ways of saying he's basically just, yeah, just telling porkies here. Yeah, um, well... 
the Home Secretary is looking for a very simplistic explanation mm. to give that can be soundbited, but in fact... The Calais exists for a number of complex reasons related to states what, not wanting to um, give people full access to the right to asylum. And there are things that could be done mm. which are not um, just catching people in the sea and sending yes. them back to France that might be more sustainable solutions. For example, allowing the UNHCR to operate there, um, having a, a safe um, camp or a co some kind of temporary accommodation to live in, giving people access to legal advice, to the possibility of family reunification in the UK, resettlement or being sent back to the country of origin, but kind of access to due process. But that would be a more humane approach. But because of this wider international context, yeah. it's not going to disappear. So it's like, can we find yes. a way to fulfill our um, commitments in the, under the Geneva Convention, which is more sustainable and humane, but it's not going to disappear one day. Yeah, the outrageous suggestion you're making, and I'm shocked to my very core by it, is that the reality of the situation is a bit more complicated than politicians have made it out to be. Yeah, I, I'm speechless. But take us inside those decisions, if you will, because I know you've done some work over the years talking to officials and politicians in the Home Office involved in this policy. Mm -hmm. So why is it, and I, I don't want ask you to be a mind reader or sort of impute motives people but from what you know of those conversations talking to those officials those politicians why is it that we get a situation where ministers who either do or certainly should know better still find themselves standing up saying yeah, asylum seekers are coming here to take economic opportunities and we need a tougher regime to deter them from coming here why does this keep happening so i started off by exploring the economic rights of asylum seekers in the uk and i wanted to look at the range of arguments to support or challenge the reasons for the policy. When I looked, uh, I gathered a very big corpus of discourse data, but the arguments uh, made in Parliament, in the Lord, in speeches, in policy documents, for and against particularly the right to work. And this pull factor was, I thought I would have a range of arguments. The pull factor was the only argument in defence. And, um, and it wasn't from a broad range of different actors across the political spectrum, as in, as was the case for being in favour of the right to work. It was actually just a very narrow range of actors, politicians, um, home office spokespeople. So I, in the next kind of phase, having looked at the evidence and been mm. really struggling to find any real evidence that economic <laughs> um, factors like the right to work and welfare are pull factors, I then um, embarked on a work package looking specifically at interviewing politicians, former home secretaries, immigration ministers, um, people, civil servants working in the home office on asylum, um, trying to work out maybe if they had access to evidence that I didn't have. And if not, how did they learn That's about... Very, it's very charitable, charitable I possible explanation. Did you actually say that? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Do, do you know something I don't? Yeah, have, you yeah. got, have you got some secret evidence to justify all this yeah. stuff that, we, that the rest of us don't know? Yeah, I did, um, yeah. Oh. Well, because I um, wanted to know how did they... Uh, oh, and, and, did, and did they? Did, did they have some secret evidence? That, no, they no, had no evidence. Know. So I wanted to know how they learnt about migration yeah. for asylum and how they came to understand that it, the pull factors were key key factors in mm. understanding this and basically what I found out was that um, civil servants would explain that they were aware that there was very little evidence for the yep. pull factors the evidence they'd seen was very weak and, and sketchy 
but that they recognised that um, this was something that the politicians were very committed to. They got strong signals about possible policy options. Um, And so it wasn't really seen to be um, politically worth drawing attention to. The politicians, meanwhile, obviously, I wasn't at that time able to interview Theresa May because she she was the Home Secretary at that time. But former Home Secretaries and Immigration Ministers before her and um, advisors in the coalition period tended to report that they um, just hadn't seen any evidence to refute the pull factor, um, that civil servants had never said anything to them about it not being real, um, and that it just makes Amazing. common all, sense. All, 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 so they would they would enjoy explaining the push-pull theory yeah. of migration to me. and All, all these um, piles of academic evidence and all, all these briefing papers written by civil servants who've read the academic evidence lying around in the Home Office that's somehow been, been, been hidden from successive politicians of different parties over the years. Yeah, so Shocking. Part, it's a part, scandal. Somebody, somebody should investigate. Part of that is related to the way the evidence was dealt with in a kind of political manner in the Home Office. Yep. So things that tended to, if there was even, they would say if there's even a shred of evidence which pointed towards supporting the pull factor that would be jumped on but studies even home office studies so in the year the right to work was taken away the home office did its own study on pull factors Um, if that was found to just find no evidence it would be buried and and quashed and usually there would be something around the methods are unreliable the sample sizes are too small it's not kind of scientific enough and Um, and to be clear i mean you've you've gone from I think 2002 there to you've meant the coalition years. I mean, this has been this is a a feature of political policy life that has carried on over a number of years and and lots of different parties, different parties in government, in power as well. Yeah, so political scientists would call this a, a sedimented policy idea. <laughs> um, so while sometimes it can be quite quick for an idea hmm. to take hold, once yes. it becomes That's it. sedimented, it's, it's politically convenient, it's asylum seekers like aren't... Um, yeah, they can't vote. Yeah. There's no real incentive. So somebody in the Home Office said to me, you know, we've got enough fires to fight in the Home yes. Office, why do we want to light new ones? Indeed. The whole purpose of this exercise, you and I have this conversation, the, the Ask the Expert series with the ESRC is, about, is all about academic impact. It's about trying mm-hmm. to take your, your academic work and evidence and bring it to bear on policy. So we, we, we're, not, we're not setting about in this conversation or this exercise to, to, to influence policy in any particular direction. We're just trying to get the people who make and implement policy, implement policy to take regard of, of evidence. Mm. So we will keep going. But yes, the sediment is heavily built up. So that's where we are. We have a silted sedimentary policy uh, and a couple of minutes left to talk about this where do you think we're going next because there, there is there's a sort of little bit of a stirring in in conversation in parliament elsewhere there's a new campaign up and running on the right to work trying to overturn that decision of 2002 to ban asylum seekers from working do you, do you think there's any real prospect of of real change there yeah so this is the second kind of big campaign on the the right to work over this period since it's been taken away there's kind of two things really the time at which people are granted the right to work at the moment it's um, they can get a work permit at 12 months without a positive decision or an asylum application or any decision one possibility would be to bring it in line more with other european countries at around six months but then you would still be left with the fact that people can only work in jobs on the shortage occupation list yeah so 
This is a very restrictive list. Very few um, members of the British population, let alone asylum seekers, are going to be able to secure jobs that are on that list. So, what, what's their jobs are on the list? So you've got things like nuclear machine technologists in the aerospace sector. Yeah, anybody um, can do that. It's easy. International ballerinas. No, it's um, slightly, slightly harder. Very specialised particular jobs yeah. um, so, that you would tolerate people. So, so tink- um, tinkering with the rules and allowing some sort of work wouldn't make a big difference. But yeah, a sort of a bigger yeah. change. Let's pretend somehow that the, the political forces come together, that campaign, the right to work campaign succeeds and somebody in power makes a decision and says, you know what, we've looked at the evidence, maybe allowing full market access to asylum, labour market access to asylum seekers won't create a pull factor mm-hmm. and therefore we should think about doing it because that would be good for the economy, good for them. Um, what do we know about what would happen if more asylum seekers could work normally? Um, well, the best indication is from comparator countries, hmm. so countries which open up the labour market access quite quickly. And what we know from those is that it's um, very uneven. So um, highly skilled uh, people from particular countries with very good English language skills would be likely to go into the labour market. Um, others, particularly, for example, like... Um, particular nationalities or genders like Afghani women or um, people with very poor uh, English language skills or low levels of qualifications would be quite likely, unlikely actually, to um, be able to find work. Um, And and you therefore need some sort of support regime still for the people who who couldn't work. Uh, Yes, which leads you down into all sorts of questions about policy design and implementation again. Yeah, so it'd be good for Zimbabwean doctors and and that kind of thing. You know, highly skilled people who speak English, yep. who are highly so qualified. It'd be great for them, and they'd very quickly nuclear go nuclear engineers who who who, who moonlight as ballet dancers would do very well. <laughs> yeah. People without people exactly. without people without functional without without basic English or functional skills, not so, not so much. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, the point being, I, I guess, is that while there may well be some positive consequences to be had from allowing asylum seekers into the labour force, we shouldn't get carried away with the idea that this is some sort of simple silver bullet policy that makes everything okay. There's still even that getting that direction still has complications. I think it would be really positive and not harmful, but also. So if we actually wanted people to enter the labour market to be self-sufficient, so they weren't mm. receiving welfare benefits, some, for example, people su- suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, people with poor English language ability would need support yeah. and access to training, English language, etc., um, in order to take up that opportunity. Last question that we're trying to wrap up. Obviously, this is your career. This is your, your full-time job, your life's work, to try and bring <laughs> some yeah. bring evidence and fact to bear on, on, on a bit of public, public policy. Are you optimistic that the quality of political conversation, policy making in the area can get better? Or, we do, or is that sediment just, is it set forever and unbreakable? My work also has looked at the long um, history of refugee rights mm. in Britain. And, um, and you've written a best-selling book about and, it also. Uh, and so uh, by looking at history, I mean, we you're, kind you're of... Ta- you're turning down the chance to plug the book. Plug, plug, <laughs> plug the book, plug the book. Tell us, what the, tell us what the book's called. The book's called As- Asylum After Empire. It, I think if we look to history, we get a picture of continuity rather than change. So, so we often like to imagine that the present is unprecedented and has never happened before. Whereas even though we're at a situation where asylum seekers have very few rights and the best possibilities are through resettlement programmes, Britain has always sought to welcome particular cohorts at particular points in time for things like resettlement and sought to really clamp down on what they would now call spontaneous arrivals and undesirable kinds of migrants. 
So I guess I don't feel extremely optimistic and positive about the possibility of a change. But if I've learned anything from the politics of the last year, it's that you can't really predict what might happen next. <laughs> so at least since it's become so unpredictable, um, there are yes. possibilities for um, changing discourses. Here's to changing discourses. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. And that's all from us. This has been the Social Market Foundation podcast with Lucy Mablin. Thank you for joining us. Hope you can do so again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>